Would you read the end of a book first? Meaning, if you were reading a book and you got this book, would you open up to the very last chapter and read it first? Say, no. Who wants to do that? If you're reading a fiction or some type of entertainment book, you do that, it ruins the plot and ruins the excitement, the enjoyment. Nobody wants to watch the end of a play, the end of a movie, know the end of a book before they get to work through it. Would you love for me to come to you and say, hey, I saw this great new play. It's about this young couple, Romeo and Juliet. You gotta see it. It keeps you on edge for the entire play. But at the end, you know, the one sad thing is they both die. <laughs> Nobody wants to have that happen, right? Why would somebody tell you the end? Why would you want to go to the end? Now, I have a pastor friend that I've shared will read academic books at the end first because he wants to know where the book theologically is going. But the reason we don't tell the end of a book first is because it is so significant. The end of a book is critical to how it is to be grasped and to be understood. Ironically, I did some research this week. Do you know there are some authors and some playwrights that write the end of their stories first? Um, from a movie playwright, Francis Ford Coppola did The Godfather, did American Graffiti. Uh, there's another man named David, David Sedler. He did the King's Speech. He wrote the end first and then came back and then wrote the rest of his play, his book. Endings are important. And what I have found over and over is that you can have a good book, but what could make it great is the ending. And you can have a great story and you can be good, but if you fail in the ending you really take away from what is an ultimate deliverance, a, a big send-off. And I found this week, ironically, because we can do almost anything with the internet today, that there are web pages that have lists of books and movies that have bad endings. And they're often long lists. And I found it was interesting, ironically, Number one on many lists was Romeo and Juliet. And another one was Catcher in the Rye. Has anyone here ever read Catcher in the Rye? A few people have. I read it a couple years ago, and I too was taken back by the ending. So I'm not going to ruin it for you. My wife is in the nursery today, but her and I have a great disagreement over, over um, Murder on the Orient Express by... Uh, Agatha Christie, if any of you have read that, if you want me to ruin that one for you, I won't. But um, I don't like the ending. That one is high on the list. For those of you who like movies, it's interesting for me, I found they have World War Z, The Accountant, I Am Legend as movies that have horrible endings. And as you think through why a ending is so bad, there is an entire, uh, I don't say theology, but there are, there are people who write on what makes a, a book bad at the end. What, and the flip side is what would make it positive? What would be good? And, and first and foremost is a disappointing ending. 
So you want a good ending, right? You don't like the fact that Romeo and Juliet die at the end. You don't like the fact that maybe the main character dies. If he has a disappointing ending, it doesn't really send the book off well. Second, nothing significant happens. Like for those of you who, just a little hint, catcher in the rye, you come to the end, nothing significant happens. Some of, in the past 20 years, these vampire books have been very popular. And I guess there was one, and I wouldn't read it, but I was talked about this um, vampire uh, book called Breaking Dawn. I guess the entire book is about a a buildup for a giant war, and when you come to the last chapter, I'll ruin it for you, because who, vampires? Um, Nothing happens, nothing happens. So it's a disappointing, in the end, but because of nothing significant happening. And then there are ones that are anticlimactic in the sense that what happens doesn't make a lot of sense, i.e., my murder on the Orient Express. I don't like that ending. I think it's very anticlimactic. I didn't like that way it ends. And then there are things that are stupid endings where you just say, man, that is not the way that should have really ended. And a lot of disaster movies where, you know, the earth is quaking, earthquake, or, you know, things are just, you know, meteors are crashing on the earth. And when it's all said and done, You know, your main character lives and survives and makes it all through. And you say, man, that was just stupid. And then there's ones that are just too predictable. And all of this goes into how do you become a great author? How do you put something together? And when you talk about a predictable ending, like I guess many people were very critical. There was a movie and a book recently called Gone Girl. And just not happy with just, it just was too predictable. It was exactly what we expected. And the reason I tell you all of this is for when you look at great books with great endings like The Great Gatsby or Gone with the Wind or Kill a Mockingbird, we're talking about secular books, what's fascinating to me is we're coming today to the end of the Bible, and if you'll turn in Revelation chapter 22, it is a book that I believe meets all the criteria for a great ending. And when I talk about, first and foremost, about it being predictable, one of the things I want you to understand is you might have read Revelation chapter 22, which ends the book of Revelation, but also the 66 books of the Bible. I think there's a surprise ending. And I want some of you who have read your Bibles all the time, if tell me if you know the surprise ending in Revelation 22. So I will tell you that at the end of this sermon. So pay attention. Because we're coming to a book, and I think we're going to see it's a book that brings what people talk about a great resolution in the entire story and a great development of the characters. We finally see everyone focused on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Isn't it interesting? Jesus is called the author and perfecter of our faith. So if you will, turn to Revelation chapter 22. Knowing this, only bad books have good endings. And if a book is any good, its ending is always bad because you don't want the book to end. I I love that quote, if you think about it and contemplate it. So, as I've often said, when we come to the end of a study, a book study, and we're doing this over two studies, finish this in August when I come back, is that all good things must come to an end. And as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, it is the end of the Bible. It's ironic that the way God has worked this that his last prophecy, the book of Revelation, 
is often placed at the end of your Bibles, because you know we know humans place these Bibles. We could put Revelation first, but it is the book of Revelation that is put at the end, and it is the very end. And what we're seeing, if you have your sermon notes, are final words to focus on the end. Because what's going to happen is that as we come to this 22nd chapter, the final words are all put together so that it makes an impression on you. Billy Graham used to say that he used to love to read the last chapter of the Bible. Why? Because it was a constant reminder to him that we win in the end. And I hope you'll see that as we go into, into our study so you haven't been with us, we've been studying the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation is a book that was written by the Apostle John in about 95 AD. We believe it's the last book of the Bible written. It is a book where John basically tells us the outline in chapter 1, where he says that he's been told to write what is, all right, or, or what he has seen, which was in chapter 1, what is, which was chapters two and three, the seven churches of Revelation, and then what will be, which is the majority of the book from chapters four through 22. It is a book that we've passed out this timeline of end times where the focus of the book has basically been through this seven-year tribulation, the years of the tribulation, that there was a series of seal judgments, trumpet judgments, bowl judgments, For those of you who've been here, you should know by now when I say the seal judgments that one-fourth of the world dies. When I say the trumpet judgments, one-third of the world dies. And when I say the bowl judgments, by the time we get to the end, every unbeliever dies. Why why does God do this? Is God some kind of cosmic meaning? And the answer is no. What God is is a holy, just, and loving God. And he has been trying to tell people that they need to repent and come and live the right way. But people just don't want that. And, and, and so God, as we studied, and those of you who haven't been with us, we did a great study on how God has worked throughout time. We call it dispensational theology. Where we've watched how God has worked through different time periods, but always trying to get people to come back to him. And now we are in this present age, the, the church age, and, and the idea is that God is offering salvation, and he's offering it through Jesus Christ. And as we have say, stated, the gospel can easily be summarized by five topics, right? Man's sin, the person of Christ, who's God and man, that Christ died, Christ rose again, and that by faith alone. And last, over the past few weeks, I have offered up that if anyone you know, would want to enter my little contest, they could give um, me the gospel if I picked their number, name out of the hat. And surely, uh, Rebecca Rasmussen got picked. And Rebecca Bassman and her parents were able to come through and confirm it. And where is Rebecca right now? She's, she's, Rebecca's got a $100 bill in her hand. And some of you are still going to be asked for the $20 bills. I've got a few more names that I've got to hit. But I wanted to be a man of my word. I wanted to tell you guys I would do that. Again, that's my money. The reason I did that, if you're visiting, is I did this little contest because I want our congregation to understand the importance of the gospel. How important it is because the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 tells us it's the most important thing. And you would think that people would be 
flocking to come and hear this gospel so that they can have eternal life. And one of the things I want to keep you aware of, and I take a step back as I digress, because it came to me a lot as we did the, the soccer camp. A lot of times the gospel is often presented, God loves you and he has a wonderful plan for your life. But that's not necessarily the gospel, people. The gospel is, is that you're guilty. You see, if I present it that God loves you and that, you know, in the sense that he has a wonderful plan for your life, you might become a believer and you might have to go and, and, and have your family walk away from you like some of you have. You might go present the gospel and your boss fires you. You might present the gospel and, and your children now hate you because you're someone who's been telling them something about Jesus Christ. The gospel is something that you, the people of our world need, and it's critical we as a congregation tell people that. This isn't something like, hey, we're just gonna make your life better. It may never make your life better, but when you stand before God in judgment, you are gonna be so thankful. You'll kiss anyone's feet who shared the gospel with you because you'll be standing there and it's gonna be heaven and hell. And the reality is the only people who go into heaven are the people who are born again, who believe the gospel. And, and, and that's my passion and, my, and what God is doing in the tribulation, if you're unaware, theologically, is we see that God is telling people the gospel all through the book of Revelation, somehow the gospel's going out. Even angels are flying in mid-heaven to give the gospel out. And the repeated line is, is that people's hearts are hardened and they will not repent. They could care less about God. And that's the sad reality. Our love, our kindness is that we're trying to share people with, with people who don't want this. I mean, there's people here, like if, even maybe today, you don't want to be here. It's the last thing in the world you want to be here. And, 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 and you know, maybe someone in your family has drugged you here and you're here and you're just, gotta wait, I can't wait till this is all over with. Gotta go, I got something else to do this afternoon. Putting in my time. But I can tell you, if you're visiting and you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, or maybe you're a regular tender and you're not a visitor, you're not a, if you're a regular tender and you're not a believer, this judgment that God has put in the book of Revelation is so that you who never see hell can understand what anger God has towards sin. When the seal judgments, the trumpet judgments, the bowl judgments, pound the earth, pound the earth, pound the earth, pound the earth. You say, is God really serious about sin? And the answer is 100%, yes he is. He wants you to understand that when he says he's throwing people in the lake of fire, everyone who's not a believer is being thrown in the lake of fire. And we've done studies on the tribulation. We said how things are just all lining up and getting ready to go. Don't have your head in the sand. We live in a world that hates Christianity. And when you talk about martyrdom for Christianity, more Christians were martyred for their faith last year than the year before. And we said in previous studies, in the 20th century, more Christians alone were martyred for their faith than all the other centuries combined. We have to not have our head in the sands as Christians especially as our country towards more, 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 more against God. And it's, it, 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 for us who grew up in the 50s and 60s and 70s, it, can't think, it, would, it really can't be this bad. It's that bad. They are talking about just crazy things 
all through our country, and I'm not going to go down that path, but my point is, is, that the, is that God has given us this judgment. But when we come to Revelation 22, everything's over. The thousand-year reign is done. God has finally destroyed death. From this point on, from chapter 21 on, death will never be seen again. That's incredible. That's absolutely incredible. And as heaven comes to earth in chapter 21, John is recording the words of what heaven on earth is going to be like. And we studied that in the past, and now as we come to chapter 22, verse 1, he says this. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life, verse 2 bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 3. There will no longer be any curse, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and the bond servants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will have no need of the light, and they, let me read, and they will have, not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun. Because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. And what you have here is just this final picture of this incredible world. And if you have your sermon notes, it's a final description of the eternal state. Why didn't I just say the final description of heaven? Because, again, people who don't study the Bible often think about, oh, we're going to heaven and we're going to live in the clouds. No, heaven comes to earth. Heaven comes to earth. We will be tangible people living on earth, not floating on clouds, not having like this ghost kind of substance where we put our hand against the wall and we just continue to go through it. We are going to serve God and live on this earth, and it's going to be incredible. And you don't want to miss it. And so it's an incredible world. Heaven on earth is incredible. And, and these are the final descriptions, verses 1 to 5, of this. And again, if you're going to end your description of heaven what are the key things that you're bringing in well first and foremost there's a river of life there's four of them okay if you're taking notes you see in verse one then he showed me a river of the water of life this river is tied into water and and let me just tell you the big picture god often connotes salvation being good with water. Mankind needs water. One author was talking about what it was like to live in a time when you you didn't always have access to water. Um, I know that a lot of missions agencies, they go out and try to work on just bringing water to people, all right, physical water. And in Psalm, where is it? I think it's Psalm, um, oh, I have it for... Yeah, Psalm Psalm 46, verse 5. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God and the holy place on the tabernacle of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her just as the break of dawn. It's interesting. I look at this and I say, well, is this something that we're going to have to drink all the time? I don't know. I do think it is symbolic of salvation, but I think it's a literal river. And I think it's not an accident that when Jesus in John chapter 7 talks about the people who believe in him, inside them come out what? The living water, endless living water. 
You need water to live, and this water that's flowing out is the river of the water of life. Now, again, like I said, I don't know how often if we're going to have to drink it to stay, you know, you know, healthy or whatever, or if it's just going to be something that we're, it's just going to be a constant reminder that salvation came from God because this water's coming from the throne. That's its source. And, and I think it's not an accident as you look at one of the most significant passages in the Bible is Jeremiah chapter 2. And I'm just going to have you jot that down because for sake of time. Why is it so significant? Because when God is chiding the Jewish people because they were not believers, he talks in Jeremiah chapter 2 about the fact that they make cisterns, containers that hold no water. And here's the reality. A person without God in their life doesn't have the water of life. When you come to Jesus Christ, you have the water of life boiling up and, and, and you're constantly sustained. And the Bible, interestingly enough, talks about the fact that that water brings strength. And so God is going to have this water of life. It's the river of life. Now, it's not mentioned in the book of Genesis or anything. This is just, all of a sudden, this appears in Psalm, like I said, Psalm 46. Jesus talks about this, about the waters of life boiling up inside. And so God is just wanting us to know. There's a, there's a, there's, it is a, a sense where life is permanent in this place. Second, he goes on to talk about the tree of life. And I took this image from the website gotquestions.org. The tree of life is from the book of Genesis. From the book of Genesis chapter 3, when Adam and Eve sinned, God says, hey, we got to put guards up on the tree of life because if they eat from that fruit, the idea would be that mankind would be permanent within their sin. And, and the theology of this is that God wanted this garden, and we believe the tree was destroyed in the flood. And we don't know where that tree is, and then all of a sudden, voila, look, in the middle of tree, uh, the, the, that, in the middle of, the, he shows me the river of life, clear as crystal coming from the throne of God and the Lamb, in the middle of the street on either side of the river was the tree of life. And the very tree that Adam and Eve saw, we're going to see. And, and it's fascinating. It's one of the most interesting realities. Again, is this a literal tree? Absolutely. Is this something that perhaps we're going to eat from? I think absolutely. You say, wait a second, are we eating in heaven? We learned from our study of 1 Corinthians 6 that in heaven we don't have stomachs. But however, God's going to work this to process food because we know in his resurrected body from the Gospel of John that Jesus was able to eat fish and, and, and process fish. So I think that when you look at this, and it's kind of fascinating that you've got these, you've got this fruit, and you see 12 kinds of fruit, and its leaves were for the healing of the nations. Perhaps this is something that we're going to partake in. Again, God only goes so far, only gives us so much information, but for the person that says, oh, this is all symbolic in the sense that there's not really a tree, no, everything that God says, and this is the principle we talk about when we study hermeneutics, the principles to read how you read the Bible. If the literal makes sense, seek no other sense. To me, there's a tree. And it's, and it's fascinating that you, it's going to yield fruit every month. It's going to be for the healing of the nations. And what that tells me, a couple things, is number one is that, is that the idea of time. I don't know if you ever thought about it, because people sometimes say, well, when we get to heaven, there's no time. 
Yeah, there is. It's every month. So that's going to continue on every month. Now, how it's all going to be counted going forward, that's never told to us. But the idea is that we are going to mark time. And I just want you to be aware. I think the people in hell could mark time too. So you want to make sure that you're in the good area. You're in heaven, not in hell, not in the lake of fire. So fascinating as we just get glimpses of what is to come. And then the idea of the healing is the fact that it, it doesn't necessarily mean like a medicinal in the sense of you're in bad shape and now you're made better. It could be in the sense as one author talked about the fact that it is something that brings like blessing, um, like a therapeutic blessing. So however that's going to play out as well, we're going to see as we see the leaves that are going to be used for the healing. But you see that last line there at the end of verse 2? The healing of the nations. And I believe the fact that, that this is representative of the fact that we are going to still be in different groups. And people sometimes say, well, wait a second, we're just all going to be, we're all going to be believers. Well, I think God loves variety. He loves the variety of the fruit. And, and I think you've got to look at it. From, there's not going to be any animosity towards any other people group. Now, it would be all great if you, we all got to heaven and you all looked like me, okay? But that's not the way it's going to be. I think we're all going to have nations. We're all going to have, we're going to have different nationalities. That's just my take. A lot of times people say, no, it's just Gentiles. But from the fact that we've seen nations referred to in the previous chapter, from the fact that we have, from the fact that we um, have this mentioned here again, I do believe that we have nations, okay? So that's just my take. I could be wrong. I'll let you know humbly I could be wrong, but I just do see. Why would God want everybody to be tall, dark, and handsome like me? You know, some of you are going to have to be a little different, all right? So, you know. And, and, we'll, and we'll all appreciate the differences, and there won't be any racism, and there won't be any animosity towards the fact that you all don't look like me in heaven, okay? I, I, you know, and, and, I mean, all kidding aside, look, things will be perfect. And I think as God brings all of humanity together, he can make everybody look the same, but that, what good is that? I think how wonderful it is that we'll have variety. That's just my take, all right? So you have this tree there, but here's the kicker. And if we're going through three major parts, and the world is the third one. It's a non-cursed world. Look at verse 3. There will no longer be any curse. And you say, what's the curse? Well, from Genesis chapter 3, and this is interesting. Remember, I told you, what makes a good book? It brings everything together. We're going back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and 3, right? With, the, with Adam and Eve's sin and, and the tree of life and, and the curse. And the curse, if you're unfamiliar with it, is where God has said, Things are going to go wrong. Things are going to go wrong with a man's work. Things are going to go wrong in childbirth. Things are going to go wrong in this world. Thorns and thistles. And as I've continually tried to emphasize, there, the world says, hey, Murphy's Law, if, it, if anything can go wrong, it will, right? No, it's not Murphy's Law. There is a curse. There is a curse. And, you know, you, 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 you walk in the middle of the night, and all of a sudden, you, you trip over something that the kids left in the middle of the floor. Why? Because there's a curse. I'm walking down the street. I don't know how many times I, something has happened where I'm putting on a coat. I'm, I'm trying to button up my coat, and then the button breaks off. And then when the button breaks off, where does it fall? It goes do, 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 and then falls in the sewer. 
how does it perfectly fall into the sewer? How does something, you know, all of a sudden just fall into place that you can't get it? Why does that happen over and over and over? Why do things rust? Why do things break down? You all need to be reminded that is not an accident. Those things happen. What the world looks at as just maybe coincidence or Murphy's Law is because God has said, I want people to know this world is wrong. This world is cursed. God has purposely done that. And I think it is going to be incredible when we get to heaven on earth and that curse is gone. You're going to flip out. I can remember, I don't know if you ever moved from one environment to the other, but I grew up in America. I grew up in Ohio. And I was, I was in Ohio until I went off to seminary and I was 27 years old. And when I went off to seminary, I moved in August of 1988 to Los Angeles. And I lived in a guy's house in Canyon Country. And it was my first time out of the, out of the, out of the, out of the country, out of America, uh, out of Ohio for an extended period of time. And when I came seven, eight months later, it's February. And I'll never forget, two things hit me, and I can still remember them as if they're yesterday. I can remember coming out of my house that I was renting a room from, and all of a sudden I looked down and I said, my goodness, it's 80 degrees, you're in a, you're in a, you're in a short sleeve shirt. Well, you don't do that in Ohio in the middle of February, right? And then the other thing I said to myself is, man, I haven't seen rain for seven, eight months, because we were going through a drought in California, and I hadn't seen rain. Say, what's the application here? I think it's gonna be wild for us who are in heaven. We're gonna walk around and we're gonna say, wait a second, I haven't seen anybody die. I haven't seen anything break down. I haven't seen anything go wrong. I haven't seen something fall off and fall into a sewer. Because you don't understand how significant this is. The curse is gone. The curse is gone. Fourth, look at that. No longer will there be any curse, verse 3, and the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it, and his bondservants will serve him, and they will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they'll have no need of the light of a lamp, nor the the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. That is absolutely incredible. What you have here is the throne of God, and Jesus is on the throne. And you look at this, and without going into all the details, and again, trying to not make this just verse by verse, this is even big picture, the idea here of the fact that when you look at all of these things, that you have the throne of God and the Lamb. So I believe you have God the Father, and you have Jesus, we believe, is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The book of Revelation has reiterated that. He is there, and when we talk about just give me Jesus, this alone is something for you to long for, something for you to look forward to. The fact that, as the Bible says, when we see him in 1 John, we will be like him. That is meaning our transformation. And the fact that we don't have to have a sun, we don't have to have lights, and we don't, we'll never have darkness, and we'll never get tired. And boy, do I get tired as the older I get, and it's so frustrating. We will not have to have that. This is an incredible world we're going to. I mean, you look at the fact that, that we will somehow be fully identified with his name on our foreheads. And again, that doesn't make sense, the fact that Jesus would be across my forehead. 
The forehead was often like a place of like where your, where your focus is, what you're all about. I believe this will be who we are now, that we'll be all focused on Jesus, but living our lives. I had a great summary. Where is it? Um, that Pastor David Guzik, I told you, an enduring word commentary that you can get online, and I've shared with you how important it is to, if you're doing your own personal study, you can use his resources. He had a great summary of this section right here. And he said, when you come and you look at all of these things that we're getting to have in this final picture, think about these perfections. Number one, you have perfect restoration because there's no more curse. You have perfect administration because the throne is in the midst. You have perfect subordination because his servants will serve. You have perfect transformation because we'll see his face. We'll be transformed perfectly. You have perfect identification because our name is on his, our foreheads, his name on our foreheads. We'll have perfect illumination because God is the light. And we'll have perfect exaltation because he reigns forever and ever. My goodness, don't you want to be there? The Bible tells us that we are just passing through this earth, that we are aliens and strangers. And the Bible tells us that we're to long for heaven. And that's what we did this whole study on home over the past few weeks, that this is our home. This is what we want to long for. And we want others to join us. And that's what our passion and our focus should be. I just want you to think, as the Bible talks about longing for home, Isn't it interesting that the Bible calls us soldiers who are doing work for God, battle for God? And I I thought I I would share this with you. I thought I don't want to upset anybody, but I thought I came across some soldiers' letters. I'm going to share with you, there's three soldiers that this is, these are their last letters. And the very first one this very first one from, is from a man named Dean Allen. This is from the Vietnam War. And he writes that to his wife, sorry I haven't written more, but the weather is against me. You can't write out here, and when it rains hour after hour, I love you with all my heart, all my love always, Dean. And as he wrote this letter, he talked about how much he loved his wife, how much he longed for heaven, not, not for heaven, for his home. And I thought, that should be all of our hearts, our passion. We're doing this. We're thinking, of, we're thinking of our home. Four days after he wrote this letter, this is a picture of him. He stepped on a landmine, and he was dead. This man here, Sergeant David Kerr, as he wrote to his mother, wrote about how he longed for home, and he thought this is in 1918. He's fighting in World War I. And he knows that they're going to go into the the French line and they're going to go across this line and they're going to battle the Germans. And he fears that he will die in that battle. And he is correct. He is one of several thousand Americans that will die. But he writes, my personal belongings will be sent to you. Your good taste will tell you which to send to Mary. May God bless and keep you, dear heart, and be kind to little Elizabeth. I think it was his sister and those others I love so well. All of these men write about how important home was to them and how they longed to be with the people they love. They were soldiers who had given all. But when you're facing death 
and you're facing your end, what are the things that are most important to you? And this is what's coming out in all of their hearts. This man is named Tommy Kennedy, and his story absolutely just broke my heart because he had a picture of home, and he was a prisoner in in, um, in World War II, and he was held by the Japanese, and and he wrote this loving letter. And he says, Mommy and Daddy, it's pretty, he's about 18, 19 years old. You gotta remember, he's, he, he's captured in World War II. He's in a Japanese prisoner of war camp. He's not being fed. He knows he's going, he cannot make it. And he writes, it's pretty hard to check out this way without a fighting chance, but we can't live forever. I'm not afraid to die. I just hate the thought of not seeing you again. Now, what I think is also so important is he wrote that on the back of a picture and he gave it to another prisoner who did everything in his power to keep it for four years so that he could get that to his parents because even that prisoner knew how important home was. And I tell you all of this because when we look at this picture of heaven here and this description This is what we long for. This is where we want to be. This is the only thing that matters. And sometimes I feel I don't want to be frothing at the mouth. I don't want to be this, I've shared with you, just ranting pastor. I just want to make sure that all of us know that this is the only thing that matters. That's why the Apostle Paul says it is of first importance. And so he gave us these words here. God has given us these words. It's the final focus, right? But now, as we come to verses 6 to 21, and I'm just going to do two verses out of this. On your sermon notes, I want you to see that we get a caution. We get words of warning and words of warming. Because from this point on, there's no more description of what heaven looks like. There's no more description of, like, this is what it's going to be like in the daily life. Everything from the end is, please listen. For the people who are not believers, they're warning. For the people that are believers, it's warming. It's like, I want to build you up. And so verse 6, he says, and he said to me, so the angel that's taking John around says, these words are faithful and true, all right? And the Lord God and the spirit of the prophet sent his angels to show his bondservants the things which must take place, soon take place. And behold, I am coming quickly. We believe he's quoting Jesus. He who heeds the words of the prophet, and is he, blessed is he who heeds the words of this prophecy of this book. Remember, chapter 1, verse 3. This book is to be taken literally. Churches that are not taking this literally are doing such great disservice. And I tell you and reiterate this because so few churches are teaching the book of Revelation as if it's a literal book. That it's all some like pie in the sky they're, they're teaching. And you can't teach it. But... They take passages like this and they say, well, you see, he's coming quickly. John wrote this in 95 AD. My goodness, it is not quickly, but a proper word study of the word quickly conveys it to be this, suddenly. When this all happens, it's going to be sudden. It's going to happen quickly in, this, in the sense of suddenly. There's a, <laughs> there's a Beatles song that I love. Okay, and it's this song, Yesterday. Yesterday, all my troubles seem so far away. 
Now it looks as though they're here to say, oh, I believe in yesterday. Now I'm going to get on the song group. Like I sing. I don't know if I'm... <laughs> okay. But then there's this next line. Suddenly, I am not half the man I used to be. There's a shadow hanging over me. Oh, yesterday came suddenly. And it's all about a song where a guy loses his love just like that quickly. Girl walks out of his life. But you can understand what God is saying is this is going to happen suddenly. Now, in the meantime, life suddenly does take some twists and some turns all the time. Suddenly, all of a sudden, you're going down the street and, and you're in a car accident. Suddenly, you pick up the phone and you find out that the doctor says you've got cancer. Suddenly, you find out that someone that you love has, has died. Suddenly, well, this is coming suddenly. And in the big picture of humanity, 2,000 years, we're going to look back and we'll say, wow, in, you know, when we're in heaven for a million years, and we're going to look back and we're going to say, that however long God gave mankind, and if it would start today, 2,000 years seemed like a blink in the eye. You say, wow, that was suddenly. So I just want you to understand, suddenly, that's what, what is being said here. But you don't want to miss verse 7 where it says, blessed is he who heeds the words of this book. You say, Mike, this isn't telling me how to love my wife or telling me how, telling me how to be you know, um, a good worker. What this is trying to tell you is this is where the world's going. This is why you're not to store up your treasures on earth. Moth and rust destroy. Thieves break in and steal the stuff that's on earth. You live for the world, you're going to find yourself all of a sudden very disappointed when you are facing death. And it suddenly comes upon you and you don't take anything with you. I just know that it's ironic that God has put this here because in so many things in my life, suddenly, 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 you never know when things can change so quickly. (laughs) I do. uh, I don't have time for that story. I'll tell you another story another time. So here, this is where we're going. This is the end. This is the end. God wants you to be able to understand that there is a literal heaven on earth and he wants you to understand the final words of warning and warning. For you who are believers in Jesus Christ, as Billy Graham said, I love to read the end because I know we win. This book, I believe the book of Revelation fits so perfectly for the entire Bible is that it puts everything together in such a great, great treaty, such a great book. This is, I believe, the greatest book ever written. It has the perfect ending. It brings all the elements together. But I said there's a surprise, right? We just read the essence of it. Do you all know the surprise? Here's the picker. Never forget this. This is the surprise. It's just the beginning. You got that? It's just the beginning. It's just the beginning. When we get to heaven, we have eternity forever. It's just the beginning. You don't want to miss it. Somebody sent me a note this week. There's a, was a song, how's, I goes like, for every ending there's a beginning or something like that. I, I, I'll mess it up, I, I'll get it, I'll get it. It's just the beginning. Make sure you're there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your grace, your mercy in telling us where the future is going. I pray, God, that everyone here thinks through life, where they're spending their time, how they're spending their time. Thank you, God, that you allow us pleasures on this earth.
thank you for the mercy that you give us. But God, help us to be people that recognize where the world is going. In Jesus' name.